0: I'm Alicia McAleisick Kurtz, and welcome back to Real Talk. On our last episode, we heard a story from this guy. Hi,
1: I'm Omar. I'm an EM resident in New York, and I had the privilege of caring for patients during the peak of the coronavirus, and it was wild.
0: As I think most of you already know, Dr. Omar Mania is not kidding. This coronavirus pandemic really has been. In a word wild it's an up and down roller coaster ride filled with anxiety and stress unknown twists and turns and honestly never ending rows of track with no visible end in sight in omar's story he highlighted three specific things that are making this experience particularly tough for healthcare and frontline workers and as we always do at a live real talk session After we heard Omar's story, we had a chance to hear other stories and reflections from some friends who joined us over the video chat, all of whom made it pretty clear that what Omar is feeling is pretty universal. For starters, in healthcare, we're scientists. We love basing the care we provide on our experience and our knowledge. We read and study as literal lifelong learners, and we're constantly basing our decisions on both our education and our clinical experience. But with COVID-19, there is no for-sure evidence just yet. There aren't years of others' experiences for us to learn and study from. It's just what we're doing right now, or what we noticed last week, or what we hope applies from everything we learned from SARS, the first coronavirus outbreak. And we're finding ourselves having to relearn what we think we already knew every single day as the information about COVID-19 changes and develops so fast.
1: I also find myself questioning the foundations and the principles that I learned in residency.
0: This is Dr. Eric Bludinger, an attending physician in New York City.
1: I mean, we're so used to even intubating patients who are tachypneic or dyspneic all the time and don't let them breathe over 25 30 breaths a minute. And we're starting to think, wait a minute, should we actually intimate them or should we let them just ride off of the vent? And I think that's what may, I mean, going back to what everyone's been saying about making decisions based on imperfect information when the stakes are so high and everything is so novel and new, also makes this so scary.
0: While the data and facts are absolutely changing and evolving, one thing we do know for sure based on our experiences so far is that this virus can be super deadly. And when people are not doing well, the normal things that we do that are successful in critical care are not always successful for COVID patients. Specifically, we know that patients who end up intubated and ventilated, they don't tend to recover. And many more of them than we're used to Will die. Dr. Angela Kai is another emergency medicine resident in New York. She works at a lower volume ED than Omar, but one that is far too small for the volume of patients they see.
2: I worked at a 70,000 volume ED. The difference is that our volume is lower, but we're working in a space that is designed for like one third the volume that we see now or three times less. So it presents different challenges. So we weren't you know, incubating that many people a day. But for the space that we were working in, it's, it's like already a terrifying environment to work in, being constantly surrounded by hissing oxygen and alarms. And it's just like a minefield. And I'm like, really scared. And it was just like where instead of looking for one in f- 10 sick patients, it's like one in three patients that might die on your shift. And that's just like a Terrifying feeling to carry around and having like no control over you you never want to feel like you don't have control over a room, but in that setting is really scary. I think one of the things that was difficult is I take a lot of pride in goals of care discussions with families. And I think a lot of that is because you're translating really complicated science and trying to like prognosticate and help them understand what a good quality of life is after you get extubated. And in this setting, I really had nothing for them. You know, in retrospect, I know that 10 of 26 patients that I chart reviewed last time they died and probably more will. So I felt pretty good pushing people away from being intubated. But, you know, you you never want to be the doctor that thinks that you denied someone a possibility of a cure. And I have no idea if I did that or not. And so you know, a lot of the media talked about ventilator rationing and, you know, thankfully we never had to do that, but I think that the level of uncertainty of deciding whether or not to even offer it, understanding the resource constraints was probably just as difficult.
3: I thought it was really like to, Angela, to your point, I think that that was such a weird and hard burden in the ED that we hadn't had before.
0: This is Dr. Arnab Sarkar. He's also an emergency resident in New York City.
3: I had three patients, like the ones you're describing, where we felt like putting them on the ventilator would, would not provide any meaningful benefit to them. And we made those just like, you know, these are the, all three of the patients I saw overnight. They're all elderly women. And me and the attending, both times I was working with the same person, he's a couple years out of residency, and we're like two young dudes who, sort of decided the course of these people's care. And we just sort of willed it into existence. You know, we felt like it wouldn't benefit them. And we said, we're not going to intubate them based on what we're seeing and how they're doing. And then you could see kind of the ICU notes after that propagate it. All three of them had ethics involved and they end up being that they didn't offer them intubation being on the ventilator. And, and you have to think that like, even if we didn't say that, even if we didn't say uh, intubation would not benefit them and we just said nothing, then those people could have actually gone at some point and been intubated. But because we said it, we documented it, that we're not going to pursue intubation even if they need it, I felt like that set that course in motion. And I didn't realize that's what I was doing until I looked back at the notes and saw that that's what happened. I don't know that we made the wrong choice, it's just the gravity of that choice um, didn't set on me until later.
0: Arnab brings up a really interesting phenomenon in medicine that honestly adds a lot of pressure to emergency providers. It's common for the inpatient team, the the hospital doctors, the ICU, to continue along the course for a patient that we set in the ED. And this burden of making those initial in-the-moment-but-hospital-course-defining decisions, it's something that's been hitting me a lot lately, too. So this next one, yes, it's me. Sometimes I get to participate in the small group part of Real Talk, too. You know, the ER, like, we take so much heat. The fishbowl, like, everyone judges us. They've got always the beauty of your, like, perfectly packaged with duct tape and popsicle sticks, like, patient. But You did all the investigative work for them, and they think, oh, you're such a sloppy doc, whatever, but they – they really do listen to what we say. They really do follow the the treatment course that we've started. Do you think this person's really, really sick and they're gonna go to the ICU and you're gonna tube, et cetera? Do you think they should be comfort care? Do you think they should this like more often than not, we set the course for that. And in a time like this where the number of critical cases is so high, I think that burden just suddenly feels more palpable even though it always exists. So people just don't like, you know, Angela said one in 10 of your patients is really sick. Whereas now it's like every third or every other patient is really sick. And suddenly the gravity of that um, influence, you know, and and how much it truly will impact how someone spends their last moments or how they die. And is it comfortable on a morphine drip or is it on a ventilator? And were you right or not? But I'm, you know, giving these families life or death advice about how their loved ones should fight or not fight or live or not live or get a ventilator, or not get a ventilator. We have a weird relationship with death in the U.S. It's not really in our culture to be okay with people dying. And oftentimes patients and families seem concerned that if they don't want to medically insist on doing absolutely everything for themselves or their family member, it's like saying they don't want to live or that they don't love their family enough to want that person to live. But see, I think most people don't actually understand what doing everything in medicine means. In real life, it's not like on TV or the movies where the person suddenly wakes up and it looks like they were just asleep a few minutes before. In real life, CPR is painful and messy, It causes your ribs to break. It bruises your lungs. It's super traumatic for the body. It's not graceful or peaceful. And being intubated with a ventilator breathing for you comes along with its own list of high-risk complications and long-term issues afterward. This is intense stuff. We call it critical care, the intensive care unit for a reason. And so right now, with coronavirus causing people to get super sick, and with us already knowing that certain patients' chances of living are very low, that the intubation and ventilation isn't helping many of them anyway, and that dying with medical lines and tubes and CPR is not comfortable or peaceful at all, we're left having these intense, unplanned conversations over and over and over. Over with families, trying to do what is truly best for that patient in front of us. And not just what we know our American gut reaction is, which is to do everything no matter what. And with resources like ventilators becoming scarce during the first peak in New York and the number of sick patients fully overwhelming those hospitals, we literally couldn't do everything for everyone. But most people, they want everything. So then we're left in crunch time trying to help people make the toughest decisions they've ever made, helping them be okay with the idea of letting themselves or a loved one die with dignity without a ventilator, or even worse, making that decision for them because we just didn't have a choice. This, among so many other nuances, will certainly leave our healthcare team's traumatized in less obvious ways for a long time, even after this whole thing seems over on the surface level.
1: I think as a non-clinician who is very close to a lot of clinicians. This is Kathy B. Wise,
0: the executive director of EMRA, the Emergency Medicine Residents Association.
1: I think what's been interesting to observe from afar is the weight that COVID has brought to their clinical practice, and even as much so or more than the additional weight if their job is causing harm to their family they care about. The young physician who sent her young children to her in-laws' house for a month and has not seen her children. The physicians who can't see their parents or grandparents because they're compromised or or elderly. And and so to have that social distancing on top of the weight of asking themselves, should I go home tonight? Do I need to go to a hotel? Do I need to do the laundry before I greet my family? Um, We have a physician who, you know, in his mind, it's probably true, gave COVID to his four-year-old son. Um, And if something had happened to that child, I don't know if he would ever Sorry, I'm the one that's crying. It's not even my day-to-day. While I'm very worried that what's happening today um, in the pandemic, I'm even more worried, as someone who cares for these physicians, of the PTSD. And and I'm choosing that word not clinically, but just as what I think it means, is that, you know, these stories that y'all are telling today, how is that going to manifest? How is that going to keep you awake? at night that I think will be hard to deal
0: with. While we keep talking about the ways this is all really rough on healthcare workers, I'd be remiss if I didn't own the fact that, maybe above all, the hardest thing for those of us working on the front lines is the same thing that's worrying everyone else, whether you work in healthcare or not. Here's Minna Omar's wife, summing it up perfectly. How long is this going to last, right? Like the mentally, psychologically and like physically,
2: what are, are we supposed to just say this is our new normal or are we going with like, our lives are on pause, right? So it's like, how do you deal with, with this new reality for, for you guys as, do- as doctors, surely, but you know, for, for others who are like working from home or yeah, can't see their families for I don't know, however long. Um, yeah. So I think about those things.
0: We all think about those things. We all want this to just go away, to get back to the stuff that makes us happy, that makes us feel human, spending time enjoying this world with the people we love, being free. This whole thing is just more uncertainty than most of us ever imagined we could handle. And certainly, it doesn't seem like something we're going to make it out of without at least some low-level emotional trauma. So if you're really struggling right now, know you're not alone. As strong as most of us try to be, this isn't easy for any of us. And it's okay to feel stressed or anxious or angry, to be looking for somewhere to put that frustration, to want answers and not even know who to ask for them. I feel you. I'm there too. But ultimately, we'll get through this. We have to. The sun will keep rising, another tomorrow will come. And if we all keep doing our part to be kind and patient with ourselves, to seek the support that we need and not be ashamed of that. Whether it's streaming and making time for online workouts or yoga, or getting a therapist or a counselor, setting up gripe or vent sessions over video chat with your friends, uh, playing music, uh, take up a new hobby like painting or gardening, uh, buying a puppy, whatever it is, give yourself permission to do it. And please do something. Do something to take care of yourself. Allow others to support you in the ways they can and be the person a post-COVID you will look back at and have wanted you to be right now. And please just know, you are stronger than you think. Thank you to our leaders from EMRA, the Emergency Medicine Residence Association, for supporting Omar and sharing his story and in sharing your own reflections with us. To all the organizations out there who are making mental health and other services more accessible to frontline workers during this pandemic, to the team at Vituity for their support of this podcast, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer, and to all of you for listening. I'm Alicia, and this is Real Talk. Want to connect with the Real Talk podcast or record your story with us? Head to www.vituity.com forward slash Real Talk for more information or email us at realtalk at V-I-T-U-I-T-Y dot com.